Oh, Tannenbaum, Mike Tannenbaum, you'll never be Bill Bradley. You were the GM of the Jets and did it very badly. You drafted Sanchez to play QB. You left the team in misery. Oh, Tannenbaum, Mike Tannenbaum, you'll never be Bill Bradley. Well, we received so many emails and texts and calls from our Bavarian fans. Uh, We have a large contingent in in Bavaria who wanted to hear Mike Tannenbaum. I think I don't read German. So I just I just saw Tannenbaum a few times and just figured that's what they wanted. So that's what we did. I was very upset that he didn't draft Christian Hackenberg. Like, I just felt like he must have, but he did not. Mike McCagg. Mikey (laughs) Mack. Mikey Mack. Anyway, welcome to a holiday edition of the Bill Bradley Collective. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. We are in the, what ESPN has decided is the most wonderful week of the year. Is this, it's this week, right? It's Capital One Bowl Week. It's Capital One Bowl Week. We're going. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. There's no other way you could have the the Frisco Classic. How, how else are we going to watch UAB, BYU in a <laughs> Let's shootout? Go. No, nothing says that everything is paid badly by Capital One is your sponsor. <laughs> and, and there's still the cap, right? There's still BYU the has already lost to UAB. Oh, no shit. Yeah, they, they lost to UAB. In, the, in one of the typical bowl games, like, we got to play who? Oh, I'm not playing. <laughs> we don't need to watch any film on them. But anyway, how you doing, Zach? Well, the Jets blew a 10-point lead today, so I'm doing about as good as I do every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I did see, I, I was busy working all day today, and I, I did see that they were up 10 points, and then they flipped it back out, and they were down 7, and I said, all right. But they did cover. They did cover. They did they cover. They did cover. It was an 8.5-point spread. So I would normally ask you what you're going to be ranting about, but this is Rantapalooza. Our Woo! annual, our annual event that we have at the end of every season, um, well, biannual, se- biannual event because mm-hmm. our seasons are half a year. Although they used to be like just indeterminate amounts of time, and then we just didn't end too. But uh, it's it's very exciting that we're doing Ranapalooza. So we'll get right to the question: When Bart gets caught stealing Bone Storm, you know, during the Christmas episode because he gets his picture taken, what video game does he end up getting from Marge for Christmas? Lee Trevino's putting challenge. It's Lee Carvalho's Lee putting Carvalho's. challenge. <laughs> they didn't get permission from Lee Trevino. But it was Lee Trevino. <laughs> he looked like Lee Trevino. It was clearly Lee Trevino, but it's called Lee Carvalho's putting challenge. Yes, that, that was the time. I think that I think I get credit for that one. Yeah, I'm gonna Absolutely. give it to So he'll show up in Happy Gilmore, but he won't give like Fox Network the license to use his name. Like, really? Really? Come on. Yeah. Come on, come <laughs> on, Lee. You, you've hit the ball into the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. All right. Andrew, how you doing, brother? Doing well. Good to be here. Yeah, so you, you, had a big, you were busy at work today, too. Very much so. I, I miss the Jets, and it's for the best. I always record these games, and then I, Zach tells me about them, and I delete the recording before I watch it. So that's my uh, weekly routine. So I have a special debtor alive for a, a Hall of Fame pullback that was born on Christmas Day. You haven't answered it yet. I assume you don't know. Uh, he played for the Memphis Southmen after playing in the Super Bowl. Then he went on to the Giants, and he later became Comeback Player of the Year. He is also the only player in the de- in the 70s who ran, had a 1,000-yard season but did not fumble. 
I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? I'm not trying to go long here. Can you repeat sure. that? Sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. What, I just want to hear the, What year is this? What, I'm what, not going to tell you the years. It's too easy. So, but you can guess because it's a WFL. Oh, okay. He plays in he, Christmas. He's born on Christmas Day. He's a fullback. Yep. Plays in a couple of Super Bowls. Leaves his team and joins the Memphis Southmen very briefly in the WFL. Leaves them. Goes to the Giants. The New York football Giants where he has... Two unremarkable seasons. They do not pick up his uh, contract. He goes back to his original team where he wins Comeback Player of the Year, and he is the only player in the 70s to gain 1,000 yards while not fumbling. He is in the Football Hall of Fame. Was the original team the Oakland Raiders? It was um, not. Larry Zonka? It is Larry Zonka. <laughs> Sorry, I needed to hear I needed to yeah, hear No, that's Sorry. fine. There's a lot of information there. Uh, is Larry Zonka dead or alive? My budget's getting tight with these, man. I better get this right. Um, I mean, CTE alone. Dead. Larry Zonka's dead. He's not dead. No, the other two, I think, uh, I know Mercury, I, I think Mercury Morris and Jim Kick are dead, but I'm not sure. But I know Larry Zonka's alive. Okay. Well, Larry Zonka's alive, so you don't have to. I fucked it up. So. No, no, you do not have to send an edible <laughs> arrangement to the Zonka family. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for the alive answer. No problem. <laughs> so, uh, before we uh, head to our rants, we have an exciting event coming up on January 2nd at 1 o'clock at our home away from home, the Draft Choice, in beautiful New London, Connecticut. We'll be recording a live episode while half-watching football games, and we will then do our draft for the worst people in politics. Next week, we'll be going over the results from the last draft choice draft, which was the worst people in sports and see how we did with that. We will have our Rantapalooza on the bill Bradley collective. Passing through the intersection of sports and politics. We are the bill Bradley collective. Here are your hosts, Andrew, Ed and Zach. So to kick us off this week, uh, my first rant will be about the recent comments by Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi concerning uh, members of Congress owning stocks. Now, what's important to note here is that Nancy Pelosi, since she started in Congress up till now, has increased her net worth from about two million to over to about two hundred million. That has been done purely through the stock market and the investments she owns. Um, there are actually apps you can get called the Nancy Pelosi investment app, which will track the investment she's making so that you too can also invest in these stocks where they asked her about the idea of banning Congress people from owning or being able to trade in stocks. Now, Congress is privy to loads of insider information. They have the power to investigate companies. They know when companies are going to be investigated and the impact that will have on their stocks. They have insider information like disclosure reports, things like that, that they have access to. And somebody thought it would be a good idea that maybe it's not a playing, it's not a level playing field, that maybe they're playing with a bit of an advantage and we should stop that. And Nancy Pelosi scoffed at the idea and said, well, we're a free market economy. And, you know, we don't want to hamper the free market economy. If you ever wonder... Why is it that Democratic policies poll at like 67%, 72%, 59%? 
and why we lose all the fucking time, it's because the Republicans run against Nancy Pelosi and who the hell would like this woman? Who would like this person? She is the reason America will be better off when she's gone. So I think she is, in terms of the way she goes about the functions of being Speaker of the House, pretty effective. You don't find, like, she's way, Chuck Schumer could take some lessons from her. That doesn't make her less hideous. She is, you know, Walter Schaub pointed out or stated that Congress people not being able to buy stocks is as logical as pulling over when an ambulance is going by. It's just the right thing to do, so you do it. And there's a whole bunch of people in her caucus who agree with this. AOC has been way out on front on this issue. It's a disgrace. She becomes a caricature of herself too often, and it's time for her to go home and play with her great-great-grandchildren. I think that um, it's essentially, I mean, it's more like it's, it's insider training, a uh, trading. It's something that's sort of not glorified, but like mo- films, uh, the likes of like the Wolf of Wall Street and what's it, Boiler Room, are these 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 broker brokerage houses that run these pumping up schemes where people have for these guys that have the edge on everybody else. And I'm not sure, and they're villains and they're cretins. And for a congressperson that has all of this a veteran, a tenured one, Pelosi, that has every advantage on every other investor out there. Like, it is, there, there is a predatory element to somebody. And like, Martha Stewart served time in jail for insider trading. And what the fuck else is... What's the, what is exactly the yeah. difference between her and what's Pelosi's doing? I, I can't imagine it's, being worth $200 million and... At the expense of... And being like, this is what I want to do with my time. Um, at 80 years old. Um, so, in a similar vein, Joe Manchin today announced that he is going to kill the Build Back Better bill because he has a lot of issues with it. The vast majority of his issues seem to be that almost all of his money is in coal. This would uh, deal with the coal problem because it's such a dirty form of energy, and he might actually have to move off his of his yacht. Manchin is a monster, and um, I'm a little embarrassed that a year ago when we, we each had to pick a Democrat for our worst person in the world— uh, all of us forgot Manchin because he was just staring there with his big nose. But I do think sometimes that Manchin becomes a straw man because everyone is concentrating on Manchin and a little bit less to cinema and saying he's the one reason that we can't have this. But what about Romney? What about Collins? What about Mikowski? These people that say, oh, I'm, I'm a moderate. I like to see things from both sides. You know, I'm an independent. I'm not anyone's, you know, I'm not anyone's rubber stamp. There was a 0% chance that any of them were going to deal with this or the uh, voting rights bills, even though, I mean, Romney, Romney could be elected in Utah no matter what happened. So I don't understand why, yes, Manchin gets a lot of the hate he deserves, but he shouldn't get all of the hate. There's enough hate to go around to some of the others. I agree with you in the sense of these so-called Republican moderates, these mavericks in the vein of John McCain um, that get portrayed in the media as being like the saviors of the Republican Party. Like, there was no discussion about if they would ever vote for this Build Back Better deal. There was no discussion 
on if they would ever vote for any part of Biden's agenda. We just accepted that they wouldn't. And that is where I, I do disagree with what you said about like, well, equating Manchin and Collins and Murkowski and Romney, which is we don't expect them to do the right thing. They're the opposition party. The opposition party is supposed to oppose the president. The <laughs> the president's party is supposed to support the president's agenda. At this point, why the fuck do we care if Joe Manchin is there or not? Why do we care? Well, we shouldn't, but my I would argue Prim- primary him. Let's 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 put a progressive up against them. Let's see but, if he wins. And if he loses the general, guess what? We're in the exact same fucking spot. I mean, Zach's favorite one of Zach's favorite pundits and friend of the pod actually tweeted today, Matt Iglesias, about how Manchin catches all this shit. But the fact is that there is not a pro- quote unquote progressive in West Virginia that could possibly hold that seat, considering just how the, the margins with which Trump won. And it's almost that like he said like the Dems are better off to go. Get an RC in a in a in a in a different state, um, besides West Virginia, because you know Manchin's he's as he's as progressive right. as going to get in West Virginia as an elected senator. Maybe we just kind of move on from trying to get him out because I don't but, not sure he's but, but but he's he's a monster. Of course he is. I'm not denying that. But my but, issue, Zach, is is with your statement that the opposition party is supposed to oppose everything. No, they're actually supposed to do what's best for the country. That's kind of what we were founded on, and the fact that. Literally not one Republican is ever held to that. That didn't happen when Trump tried to pass the COVID relief bill. Democrats got in line and helped out. This could be a podcast in and of itself, but I disagree that that's what our country was founded on because the anti-federalists and the federalists were not exactly best friends. And there's but they they still well, I mean, let's go back to the 60s. Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton in the face. But let's go back to the 50s and 60s where we did see some of it. Yes. What Dick Dix, Dick Nixon was low Weicker. low Weicker, but Dick Nixon was not impeached or, or moved to impeachment just by the, the no, you're guys. absolutely right. Republicans joined him. You're absolutely right. Okay, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> these guys are hot, man. I get you know it's tough. It's tough to reject here. Listen, we're uh, a week removed from Christmas Day and a lot of Christmas parties. Two weeks removed from New Year's Day, a lot of New Year's Eve parties and such, and we are still staring down the barrel of this COVID pandemic. These new you know, Omicron and, and, and what have you. And you see cases, you know, New York City just hit this all-time record for uh, positive COVID cases. Um, shit's fucked up. A lot of us are vaxxed. Too few of us are not boosted yet. And two of us, too few of us, uh, everybody, aren't vaxxed at all. But there's a certain, there's, a, there's been really bad messaging, I think, at the top from the CDC to the Biden administration on, on, on all of this. And what it's done, in my mind, and in, in, in following sports and what's happened in sports the last couple of weeks, as far as in this, in this weekend of all of these, look at some of these starting lineups in the NBA this week. These teams that have seven, eight players active, and it's guys straight off the D-League. It's guys that I think me and Zach watched in college that we never thought had a prayer to play in the pros, and they're starting NBA games. Look at um, massive cancellations. And I think that that messaging from the top, from the CDC, the government, it funnels down to, to the NBA, to the NFL, to the NCAA. And you've gotten, uh, the word now is that they want to, the leagues and even the colleges and conferences want to push for, if you are a vaccinated player that is asymptomatic but tests positive, well, let them play. I think that's fairly controversial. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but if coming out of the holidays, Christmas, 
in New Year's, and we see another. Uh, we see we've seen a spike already. We see a, a post-holiday spike. Do you see sports, professional, collegiate, being in a place where, again, positive tests if you're asymptomatic and vaccinated mean nothing as far as canceling games? Like, what do you guys think of that? I think in the NFL, we'll absolutely see that happen. I think this week uh, was the NFL's nightmare that they had to postpone uh, two games, and now they have a Monday and a Tuesday night game. They postponed three games. Three games, sorry. Two Tuesdays and one Monday. Two Tuesdays and one Monday. And they have, you know, 11 players, like, on each team, except the Jets. The Jets have been uh, COVID immune for this. Uh, my guess is because nobody shows up for practice. <laughs> oh, that's what it looks like on a week-in, week week-out basis. And I think we'll see it in the NFL because they don't want this to happen again. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and there is not nothing to, if that makes sense, there is not nothing to... The idea that if you're vaccinated and you test positive to COVID, what harm are you actually providing to people around you? It's the NFL is going to be the first one to do this. I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, it seems like it's just going to make things worse for the staff and their families where you never know the staff's families. Well, I mean, the thing about professional athletes is that they tend to be 26, 27, 28 years old and are likely to have children who are unable to be vaccinated. Yeah. However, I don't have a real sense of this. I I, I mean, a real strong feeling. I, I don't, I mean, at what point, if you, if you have a disease but have no symptoms from the disease and everyone you're playing with is vaccinated and also has no symptoms of the disease, are you doing harm? Is this becoming... A, a kind of end in and of itself. I don't know. I don't feel strongly about it. I do. I have some concerns. I have a friend, a, a dear friend, who was vaccinated. She had not been able to get her booster shot because she caught COVID, uh, but she was vaccinated, but she's a cancer survivor. And she's like, she was sick for a couple of days. No, she's fine. She didn't die. She would have died if she didn't have the vaccine, probably. I mean, her doctor told her she would have. But, I, you know... I don't know. It's it, we have moved to a point where the clear right and wrong is 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 kind of gone, and we're moved into a murkier area, you know, in Connecticut or in places where people are vaccinated. And to kick us off for our round of sports uh, related rants, I'm going to go back several months uh, to something we were actually very similar to what we were just talking about, uh, which was the Washington football coach. His name is Nick. Rakelovich? That's close enough. Nobody will ever have to talk about him again. Yeah. So, yeah, you're the last person to ever mention him. Where he was fired, uh, he was the f one of the first people fired uh, from the Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. Uh, you may remember him as being the climate daddy from the presidential primaries. Put in a mandate saying that all state employees who are not vaccinated are, will be fired. And uh, the coach was not vaccinated and was fired. And he put in a 34-page appeal to this, which just goes to show you the lengths that unvaccinated people will go to to justify their status rather than just get a free vaccine that takes all of, I don't know, 45 seconds to get. And in that, in that appeal, he claims that Jay Inslee personally targeted uh, the Washington State football team, to which Governor Inslee responded that he's just plain wrong. Um, he also, in that appeal, correct me if I'm wrong, 
said that the AD, the athletic director yep. of Washington State, was harassing him, and that he that was why he was fired. Washington State football team was not a bowl team at this point, and will be playing on December thirty first in a bowl game against the U. Is this the best thing that could have happened to the Washington State football program? This guy, when you hear him interviewed, he's dumb for a football coach. And he's... Oh, he makes Orgeron look like... Yeah, nice. oh, yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> right. This guy, yeah. The only college this guy could have actually graduated from was Washington State. Like, it's... Uh, it's He's a dope. And no, he's not being targeted. And by the way, he's still out of work because no one's hired him to do anything else because he's not a good football coach. But yeah, his um, delusions of, of Grandauer are uh, kind of awe-inspiring. Uh, if you want to rewind like five or six months uh, during Pac-12 media days, you were coaches were required, if you're going to be there in person, required to be vaxxed. And obviously, Coach Nick was not vaxxed. And he raised a huge stink about it last summer. And you should have, we should have known then that this would not have ended well. We did, and know. it didn't end well. <laughs> but guess what? To Zach's point, it ended well for the Washington State football team, who, you know, had a, went on a late season surge. They killed Washington, and they're gonna be cannon fodder for the U on in the Sun Bowl. But that's besides the point. So, so he's like the second worst coach we could think about. Thank God, Urban Meyer is still the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, we spent a lot of this year talking about Urban Meyer, and uh, he was fired. And did we have a show? Yes, we did. Yes, yes, Urban Blight. Awesome. Yes. Uh, so it's only fitting he comes in here, <laughs> right? And so he um he was fired this past week, and Khan uh, is is firing him for with cause, so he doesn't have to pay him, uh, which I'm sure will be settled. But Meyer had gave a 25 minute interview. By the way, if you want to find the worst website in the world, uh, NFL.com, because so this it's is not a, BillBradleyCollective.com. No, BillBradleyCollective.com is a fine website that will be uh, up and running in no time at all. Um, but Meyer, uh, in an article, this he, they bury this in the 35th paragraph. Meyer says... I think college has changed quite a bit, too. It was about whether or not he could move from college to pros. So just society has changed. You think how hard you pushed. I believe there is greatness in everybody, and it's the coach's job to find that greatness, however you do that. Positive encouragement. Pushing them to be greater. Making them work harder. Identifying flaws and fixing them. I think everything is so fragile right now, and that includes coaching staffs. When I got into coaching, coaches weren't making this kind of money, and they didn't have agents. Everything was so fragile when it used to be team, team, team. I remember talking about it in a staff meeting three days ago. I got into this profession because I had the greatest high school coach, and it was all about the team, all about the huddle. These 50-something-year-old white men who decide that they are the last bastions of real values and the world is crumbling around them, and they're standing tall, are always the biggest assholes in the history of the planet. He talks about positive reinforcement. He kicked his kicker. What What the fuck was he saying in that? You know, he sounds like your drunk aunt at Christmas talking about her divorce. Like, hey, he used to love me. You know, what the fuck? And also, Urban Meyer... 
it's we talked about this before he when he got hired. I believe we it was a rant. We've all known he needs a bad guy. He's been a bad guy He's forever. Been a bad guy for years. He kicked a man. <laughs> he he made coaches defend their resumes. Nine months after he had the resume and hired them, as Kevin Clark said, Urban, the point is to read the resume before you hire him. A little HR tip for you. We all knew at the time this was a, a terrible hire. And this is a franchise, Jacksonville, that they interviewed Sala. They interviewed Arthur Rhodes. They interviewed Eric Bieniemy, among many others. Urban Meyer is just a colossal asshole. And that's kind of at the crux of all of this. Um, you, come, you, you, you can't talk to professionals, men with families, men with children, men with... You can't talk to them, deal with them the way you deal with... And, and I'm, surprised it took the, I'm surprised it took 15 but, weeks, honestly. But it is, and, and the reality is, I, the reality is, as Mina Kynes point out, pointed out, if they were 9 and 5, it would have all been okay. Except it wasn't okay. No. Because he's a bad man, and he's always been a bad man. And if he was just a tick worse... Time Magazine would have made him time, uh, man of the year as opposed to Elon Musk. I hope he has fun on the CBS Sportsnet uh, pregame show <laughs> for Mountain West football next year. <laughs> have a ball. There you go. I guess in this space, I'm kind of like the, I don't know, the golf guy, the golf pundit. Earlier in our season, and it was a week where I... Well, I mean, uh, fitting, you are the golf pundit. You did bring home a trophy this year, if I'm correct. Is a, that... A lovely, uh, yeah. Yeah, champion yeah. champion golfer. I won, I won, I won something. You know. Besides the point... Um, the PGA Tour, and this is the PGA Tour coming off of a season marred by COVID, marred by canceled events and diminished crowds, but also, you could say, the first sort of sport to kind of come back. Zach, I remember watching like the uh, the Heritage, and yes. nobody's in the crowd. There's no other sports going on, but there's it's just golfers out there, and there's no crowds, which made it, for a few months, like a pretty robust live sports television property. And I think that's part of what's at the crux of how if you look at the PGA Tours purses for next season, the 2021-2022 season, mother of God, somehow, despite the fact that we're all in this pandemic and this and that, these purses are exorbitant. They were exorbitant, and now they're even more exorbitant. Let's start with this. The Players' Championship. And this is besides the majors, which do not fall under the PGA Tours doctrine, where all those purses have grown 10% as well. This is just the PGA Tour. That's it. The Players' Championship, the Tours flagship event, total purse, $15 million last year, $20 million next year. The World Golf Championship events, so there's four of them, $10.5 million purse for, for the field, $12 million next year. The FedEx Cup uh, prize pool, just fucking bonus money on top of what they make, $60 million last year, $75 million next year. The FedEx Cup Tour, uh, the two playoff events that lead to the Tour Championship. Purses of $10 million last year, $15 million next year. The Tour Championship, just that tournament, no bonuses, 30 guys, four days. 30 guys are going to split up $18 million guaranteed next year. Next year, purses, guaranteed, purse money, $427 million. But you add in an additional bonus and compensation. This is not sponsor money. This is those the bonuses, the, the FedEx Cup bonuses, uh, the PIP bonuses, guaranteed money across the tour next year, $838 million. Ed, off the top of your head, what is the NBA salary cap right now? 
what is what is it like a hundred and one oh it's like one oh one forty five so what less than that right one oh eight it's I think I thought it was closer to a hundred yeah I think it's like one oh four one oh five something like that yeah and you multiply that by uh thirty that's three billion split amongst you know how many players. You figure uh, you're 15 times, you know, 300 players. Well, they have 15 per team, 460. 450. The players that really see this money, there's like 100 of them. They're going to see a piece of a billion dollars. You could be rank and file, mediocre, whatever. This money is absurd. I don't know what, and I like golf, and I watch golf. But you look at the NFL and their salary cap, and you look at what the players take of the of, of that piece in the NBA too. I mean, you. I think both of we could all name the hundredth best player in the NFL or NBA. We could all approximate that in our heads. Yeah. You know, hundred players. Could either of you name the hundredth best golfer in the world? That's gonna probably likely make well into seven figures next year. Sorry, guaranteed. Sorry, caps one twelve. One twelve. I have two takes on this, and one of them is a little bit of a pushback on 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 how oh, you're taking no. this. I I think one I think one of the reasons I and I couldn't remember if we did this as a rant or not, or else it would have been part of my rant to Palooza, which is the corporatization of golf. They are they're running two quote unquote the matches a year now, which are just corporate funded giveaways. They're basically just commercials for corporations, bringing in billions upon billions of dollars you have all these you know every tournament has seven sponsors that are all giving all this money to the pga tour but my pushback is a little bit of do you think that part of the reason why the purses needed to get bigger was because 10 20 30 years ago the quality of golfers were not as good as this so therefore you need to make the purses bigger to keep attracting the golfers like if you want a brooks kepka to come to your tournament and you're not a major, you need to make the purse available. You have a you want a DeChambeau, you want a Justin Thomas, you want a Ann Poulter, you want well, he's easy. <laughs> yeah, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, do you um, you got to make it? You got to make it worth their worth their time. So I, I'm usually a big fan of <laughs> having the players make all the money. I mean, owners, you know, like the average baseball owner is worth three point one billion dollars. And so I have like, why? Why do we want them to have more money? Of course, golf has no owners, so there's it's it's really a weird situation about where the money goes. It kind of goes all to the players, and thank God because most of these kids were just struggling to get through their country clubs growing up. I mean, it's it's a rich man's sport. I don't think it that you need people to. I don't think you need extra money to attract it. It's not like guys have a choice of the NBA or the PGA. I mean, that's not really a thing. It's not like baseball and basketball or baseball or football and basketball. It's a different thing. And Zach, I don't think there's much disagreement between us. I don't think we're, I don't, I didn't, I didn't feel much pushback from you. I just feel like to see this exorbitant growth in purses coming out of a season where I can't imagine the tour did better business than it did any years beforehand. It almost tells me it, it is kind of the most player empowered league that there is across sports. But I'm looking forward to all the commercials about how they give 0.4 percent of their of their money to to charity. So to run the first rant out of our last round of Rantapalooza, I'm going to start off with a paragraph, uh, one sentence, but it's a paragraph because it's the New York Post uh, from a recent edition. Julio Divargilio, not even close on his name. A general superintendent at the MTBA buses department pulled into his Brooklyn office building early Wednesday morning with the blown up dummy plopped in the front seat like 
autopilot in the 1980 <laughs> comedy airplane. <laughs> there is, right now, a manager at the MTA, the Metro Transit Authority, that is currently driving around in his car with a blown-up doll that is dressed and painted in a suit and using the HOV lanes, which are for two people or more, to get into work. Now, he's denied he's using it to skirt the HOV lanes and has said that he is there purely for the company, that he enjoys the doll's company. Uh, I read this story, and it made me think that, well, this is a deeply troubled man. But also, he might just be the most normal man in 2021. (laughs) Whomst amongst us hasn't thought about using something to get into those HOV lanes when we're when we're in traffic. I give a tip of my cap to this guy. He figured out a plan. He doubled down on it. When they asked him if he wasn't if he was lying to them, his response was, "Have I ever lied to you?" And the answer is, "Of course, of, of fucking course he has." I um there's a there's a great curb your enthusiasm where Larry hires a prostitute so he could use the HOV lane. Here's the thing. You get caught with that? The best possible answer for you is yeah i do it to get out of the hov lane that is the best possible answer because everything else is so disturbing (laughs) you know i've got this doll next to me oof like you know when i'm in traffic that gives me someone to snuggle with that god almighty just just say yeah i got caught sorry about that i won't do it again yeah take the l (laughs) take the l it's not a big l the HOV lane is worth the thrill, though. It's fun. It's fun. Oh, you could do 90 oh, in yeah. the HOV lane. It's a good time. The problem with the HOV lane, though, is it's one lane. That's true. And if you have, like, four old ladies in front of you, it's like, what the hell am I doing? You ever get in the HOV lane and everybody else going by it? It's like, God damn it. I have no friends. And now you get, I finally found somebody. You get behind the gals heading to Foxwoods for bingo. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... So for my rant, I'm going to go back to this week... And it was a viral video, at least among progressive Twitter, of a group of teachers in South Dakota who had to do this dollar bill grab. And it was for money for their classes. And so there was all this money around and they were in this like mud pit grabbing the money and people were cheering them. And uh, everyone on liberal Twitter needed to say what a disgrace it was that people had to do this to get funds for their classroom and how ridiculous it was that this is what our education has become. And, you know, yeah, obviously. My rant is about the teachers themselves who decided to get into the mud like John Candy in stripes and grab for dollar bills. And if you if you bring up Airplane from 1980, I can bring up Stripes from 1981. Um Can you show a little fucking pride in yourself and your profession? The answer is no. I'm not going to get in mud and die for dollar bills so I could put up bulletin boards. I will either pay the money for my classroom or I will not. In fact, I probably should not. There is no, I assume, South Dakota. There might be a South Dakota Education Association. There's a North Dakota Education Association. But, like, where were they? The answer is no, don't do this. Because it demeans the profession. It demeans you personally. We should not be grabbing in money and mud while people are cheering. 
it is what reduces teacher salaries across the board because we don't have the pride to demand higher wages. And yes, I understand that teachers should care more about their children's education than they do about their compensation. Lawyers should care more about justice than they do about their compensation. But never, nobody ever says that to them because lawyers are the predominantly male profession and teachers and nurses are given the responsibility to be nurturing for their patients and students. Those teachers did a disservice to every other teacher in the country by humiliating themselves and dancing for nickels like the guy that that wasn't crusty the clown after the accident after uh, the plane crash. Uh, Pete, <laughs> yeah, he dances for nickels. <laughs> yeah. Right, a quarter he'll be dancing all day. It almost reminds me of like all all of these stories, especially in the last couple of years of of featured on morning news. These stories go viral about uh, people doing these putting in exorbitant labor, doing you know crowdsourcing for. Uh, money for uh, surgeries for things that should be protections, and yet we're we're championing like the hard work of a kid that's like I'm gonna I'm gonna pay for my mother's uh, you know radiation with my hard and, and this you know a teenager, and, and you see these stories on you know CBS News this morning and the Today Show about oh what a what a what a great child that is it's like whoa 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 this is not to be glorified this is a horror story this is this is it, it, boring this should not be happening and it says a lot about um you know just fucking america in yeah. 2021 and no you're absolutely right it, it, this story reminds me a lot of those stories you see that are like quote unquote the heartwarming stories where it's like this kid raised 30 dollars at a lemonade stand to pay off his classmate student student lunch debt and it's like why is this a feel-good story this is a horrifying story why is school lunch debt a thing like why are teachers being made to humiliate themselves what why are they being asked nobody made them but why are they being asked to humiliate themselves to get the basic funds for student education for their own compensation Teachers that are underpaid are going to perform lower than teachers who are well compensated because the job has rigors. Like I remember, I remember as a kid seeing you seven, eight o'clock at night, still correcting papers, still working on the next day's lessons plan when all, you know, all we wanted to do was hang out, but instead you were still fucking working. Like the rigors of this job, everyone thinks like, oh, 3 p.m. Teachers get off. They have summers off. It's like, no, the reality is teachers are working 10, 12, 13 hour days at the same time as being asked to put their own money in for classrooms. And this type of shit just reinforces that this, oh, it's, it, this is fine. It's fine that this happens because it's a feel good story and not a horrifying indictment of our American education system. When you, when you debase yourself, you debase the, you debase the profession and those teachers should be ashamed of themselves. For, for allowing themselves to be treated that way. Show some goddamn pride. To round out this installment of uh, Rantapalooza, I present a narrative, as is my want. And back in November, I wanted to honor the 10th anniversary of the second Miguel Cotto-Antonio Margarito fight. And um, and I guess that week, there were no rants. It was a... Yeah, I should have known better. I should have done my homework, but... I didn't want this to fall by the wayside. You, did, you, didn't, you didn't read the Google Doc? I did not. I, that, <laughs> week, I, that week, I did not. The couple weeks I did, I was the star pupil in this classroom, but that week, I was not. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot of gold stars. I, I got, I, oh, I got, the, the I got, I got a bad apple that week. We've talked about sort of the uh, 
what what is fandom? Is it rooting for teams? Is it, you know, tribalism and, and and whatnot. Um, we'll take you back two thousand eight, and uh, Antonio Margarito, Miguel Cotto, and this is a this is a sports and politics podcast with I think a you know kind of a niche fight podcast. It's the rare podcast in twenty twenty one. We got three fight fans here. There's, there's like know? three boxing podcasts. There aren't many. Yeah, there's and like there three. aren't many. There's fewer good ones. Yeah, this fight meant a lot to me. I was a big Miguel Cotto guy, and uh, he was favored in the fight against Margarito. These are the two. These are the two guys at 147 in 2008 that Floyd wanted nothing to do with. And Cotto was favored in the fight, and the and the idea was the winner of that fight was somebody that Floyd couldn't possibly avoid. And what happens is Antonio Margarito upsets Cotto. It doesn't just upset him, but bludgeons him punishes him it's 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 almost to look back and watch the fight it's like how could how could his how could Cotto's face possibly be that swollen that bloody from what didn't seem to be and Margarita was a heavy puncher forever but not but to this level against this level of opponent it was just it was an ass kicking of and, and again a big upset Vegas didn't see it the pundits didn't see it whatever Margarita wins the fight Floyd wants nothing to do with him he fights Shane Mosley's next fight what happens in that fight is pre-fight, Margarito's getting his hands wrapped. And Shane Mosley's trainer, Nazim Richardson, longtime trainer of Bernard Hopkins, known for being just a tough, not fucking around, I'm going to protect my fighter type of trainer. Uh, he's watching Margarito's hand, hands wrapped. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop right there. And he sees Margarito. There's no, in his hand wraps, there's, there's no, this ain't right. This is illegitimate. You're not, unwrap, Start from the beginning. I'm gonna be here for the whole thing. You're gonna, you're gonna. They weren't wrapping his knuckles. There was some, perhaps a little plaster cast in there. Whatever. Anyway, uh, what happens is Shane Mosley whips Margarito's ass, and um, Margarito's never really the same after that. But for one Miguel Cotto, he's not gonna get his justice until he fights Margarito again, and uh, he does that in 2011, November 2011. The ten year anniversary was was you know six weeks ago, and uh, as as a Cotto fan, as somebody that watched Cotto take this beating against Margarito, where in all likelihood Margarito's hands were wrapped not in in gauze and in cushion, but in like a you know, plaster of Paris. Um, and what does Cotto do? Cotto returns the favor, and Cotto legitimately with legitimate wraps beats the shit out of Margarito, and he stops him in his corner. The doctor stops it. I remember that night just being it was like unlike. Months before, the Jets beat the Pats in like a playoff game, and that was like a euphoric feeling. And that feeling that night of Cotto beating Margarito, getting that revenge, getting that just... Uh, uh, and Cotto just got in the Hall of Fame since I would have done that, and I'm glad that it's kind of aged well in that regard. But um, I think it was the night where I was at my most as a... And I, and I never root against fighters, really. I root for good prize fights. I root for good officiating, good judging, and high-level... I never rooted against one guy. That night, I rooted against Margarito, rooted for Cotto, and justice was done. And it changed Cotto's career. Margarito went off into disgrace, rightfully so. And I just wanted this season to kind of, because I've told some fight stories before, and that was one that really means a lot to me. I, I remember that really well, um, because I was stunned by what Margarito did to Cotto. And you're right, like he couldn't understand, because we, we had all seen Cotto fight a bunch of times. He was never gotten swelled up particularly, and he was swelling up incredibly in that fight. And then I heard the story after, you know, before the Mosley fight that they made him rewrap his hands. The fight was delayed. It was like, it was late. I was at the casinos watching it, I think. And um, 
And Mosley crushed him. And, and there, no shame to that. Mosley was a brilliant fighter. But, um, yeah, you realized, oh, yeah, something happened with Margarito because there's no way, like, Mosley was a smaller guy than Cotto was taking the punches and coming through him. And, uh, yeah, to see Cotto win that fight, um, Cotto gave Mayweather maybe one of his two or three toughest fights uh, a wonderful fighter and, and well-deserving in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, I think we watched Margarito Cotto one together. We did, yeah. I have I have almost <laughs> no memory of the Margarito Cotto second fight. Um, I'm I think I've been out of boxing for a couple of years at that point, but Cotto was a phenomenal fighter. I mean, he well deserving of the Hall of Fame. Um, I think it's a little bit ironic that some of Mayweather's toughest opponents were Mosley and Cotto. Yes. And, and Castillo, right? and Castillo, yeah. but but it was definitely Mosley and Cotto gave him the most kind of problems, yep. and uh, it it's good for him to be in the Hall of Fame. It's, and, you, you know, and it's also just it, it goes to show you the kind of danger that boxing has as a sport, where like one one small advantage, a little plaster of Paris on your hand, can beat the shit out of another man. Yeah, it's and, and you know. None of us like Floyd Mayweather. I didn't really always enjoy him fighting. The fact that he beat Cotto and Mosley decisively. I mean, they were good fights, but nobody walked. The Mosley fight was closer than the Cotto fight, I thought. But it was close. Yeah, yeah. they're they're both good fights. But with that, we are ending Rantapalooza. So this wraps up our penultimate week of this season. Next week, we will review our choices we made last july at the draft choice in beautiful new london connecticut of the worst people in sports in two weeks january 2nd we will be back at the draft choice at one o'clock to have our worst people in politics draft and we hope you'll come out and and uh, watch us there and uh we look forward to seeing you and the war on Christmas is over. Thank you, Donald Trump and Mike Huckabee for pointing that out. So Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll see you next week on the Bill Bradley Collective. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you enjoyed today's episode, please smash that subscribe button and follow us on Facebook at the Bill Bradley Collective. We'll see you all again next week.